Hello everyone, welcome back to History Snippets. My name is Aaron, and today I'm going to read us a snippet to my friend, Sky, who has no clue who, what, or when I'm going to be reading about. Good morning, Sky. Hello. We are both sick, so we decided to record an episode. That's right. It's, it's, what, it's, it's that time of the year again in Norway, where it's gloomy and wet and rainy. That's whole, that's the whole year, actually. Um, yeah, pretty much, yeah. Yeah, okay, so. The automobile was invented in 1885. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's going to be one of those. Yep, carry on. It was not initially a popular technological discovery. They were very finicky, weak constructions that didn't hold a dime to a good horse, especially considering roads were gravel or cobblestone at best. Most people didn't see the car as anything but a toy for rich people to play with. This was the case for nearly 20 years, until 1907. In Paris, the newspaper Le Matin... Le Matin. Eh, close enough. Yeah. The newspaper Le Matin hoped to change the public's view on automobiles. On January 31st, 1907, Le Matin read, quote... What needs to be proved today is that as long as man has a car, he can do anything and go anywhere. Is there anyone who will undertake to travel this summer from Peking to Paris by automobile? I have a feeling there was someone who dared do that. The authors at Le Matin figured that they could find a brave man to drive a car for more than 9,000 miles, 14,000 kilometers, across mountains, deserts, and tundras, performing a feat worthy of a good story, that they could use this to change the public's view. But instead of one man signing up, 11 men did, across five teams. So Le Matin made the obvious decision. This was no longer just a course to be completed, this was now a race. The yep. Peking to Paris race of 1907. Brilliant. <laughs> I think this is my favorite intro to an episode so far. <laughs> This is like the start of a horror movie, you know? Yeah. No, I'm sure you'll get there, but you're going to remind us what cars looked like back then, right? Oh, boy! Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> In order to beat the monsoon rains, the race was set to begin on June 10th in Peking. Oh, Peking? I think it's Peking. It's right. probably Peking. Probably. I'll get an angry email about that. Um, the I mean, race... you mispronounced Le Matin like five times, so it's fine. Oh, that's fine. Gonna be, there's going to be some French, but it's pissed off about that. <sighs> the race had no rules, except that the first car to arrive in Paris was the winner and would win a bottle of mum champagne. As a reward. One and a half liter of champagne. <laughs> that sounds reasonable. The course followed a telegraph line so that the race could be well covered. Each car had to carry a journalist who would report every time they arrived at a telegraph station. Fuel had been placed along the route by camels, but aside from that, there would be no assistance given and no maps. The course crossed dozens of mountain ranges, two major deserts, went through tundras, swamps, forests, and was pretty much entirely off-road. The few times there were roads, it would be caravan trails or forest paths, unpaved gravel and dirt. The majority of the course had never been traveled except by horseback. And the contestants were responsible for getting their cars to Peking themselves. 
And they were doing this for a bottle of champagne. And glory and honor, gentlemen! <laughs> okay. The five yep. cars that arrived in Peking were... The 15-horsepower Dutch Spiker, driven by Charles Goddard and Jean de uh, Talis, who was a correspondent for the Le Matin newspaper. Goddard was a spontaneous man. He had never driven a car before reading about the uh, race in the newspaper, and had borrowed the Spiker from the owner of a Spiker factory. He even had um, the owner pay his entry fee to the race which Goddard promised was refundable when he arrived in Peking. This was a lie. <laughs> to pay his fare to China, he sold most of the spare parts he had to cover a first-class ticket because he refused to travel anything less. <laughs> when that money ran out, he played piano for the first-class passengers on the ship. When his partner, Jean Dutalis, the journalist, complained about his stupidity, Goddard replied, quote, Either I shall never see Paris again, or I shall come back to it in my spiker, hot from Peking. Yeah, no, so very reasonable people had signed up for this. Uh, you know, very smart men with a long-term... Never long -term driven a car before reading about the race. <laughs> you gotta imagine that, like, that, that interaction with his boss. So, uh, I'm signing up for this great race. Uh, it'll be great publicity for our car. Um, uh, I'll be driving myself, of course, since you so are you, not you available. You don't have a license. Didn't you I arrive mean, to work on a horse? Uh, yes, I mean... I've seen many people drive the, the cars, of course. I mean, I work at a factory. <laughs> that makes me clearly qualified for this race on um, mountains and through deserts. Two deserts! <laughs> Don't worry, it's not in monsoon season. They, they've checked. The next two cars were matching 10-horsepower Dédion Beton. Betons? Mm. French which were provided by French auto dealers. One was driven by Georges Cormier and the other by Victor Collignan. Both were professional drivers driving industry standard vehicles, and uh, two unknown journalists accompanied them. We don't actually have their names. I tried finding I couldn't find anything, so good job, yeah, good, journalists. Good thing, yeah, good thing the uh, guy who never drove before got the proper journalist, uh, the famous one, right? Yeah, well, he was the one who actually got the journalist from Le Matin, the, the guys. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Then, there was the 40-horsepower Italian Itala, driven by Prince Scipio Borghese. This was by far the most powerful vehicle. It was as powerful as the four other vehicles in the race combined. So we have a 10-horsepower, two 15-horsepowers, and this is a 40-horsepower. This thing is a beast compared to the other cars. Does it weigh more? Borghese was an Italian aristocrat whose family lost most of their money during his youth, forcing him into a military career. There he trained as a consummate planner and already had hundreds of hours of driving experience. Traveling with him were two more Italians, a Luigo Barzini, a journalist, and Ettore Guizzardi, a mechanic. Compared to the spontaneous Godard, Borghese came prepared. He had the Atala stripped of any non-essential parts and had any remaining parts be removable in case they needed to lighten the weight further to get it out of a bog. He had custom-made mud flaps from floorboards that could be dropped to allow the car to crawl out of mud. Borghese even, uh, had even arrived a week early, cut a bamboo stick to the width of his vehicle, grabbed a horse, and rode 300 miles to a nearby mountain range to make sure his vehicle could fit through a specific pass he wanted to use. When he discovered that the pass was too narrow, he charted an alternative route that no one had found before and then returned the day before the race. 
So this is the only guy who's actually qualified to be in this race. Oh, I he's, mean. A, he's, he's already had years of training in the military. He's an aristocrat. He's got a custom-made vehicle. <laughs> Finally, the last automobile was the weakest of the five. The six-horsepower Comtal. A tiny three-wheeled vehicle, which was a mix between a car and a motorcycle, and was driven by Auguste Ponce with his friend Octave Falcault as the mechanic and journalist. And he was actually neither by trade. I think he was in the stable, <laughs> as far as I found. The vehicle had two wheels in the front, and one wheel in the back, and was, of course, back-wheel drive. The Comtal was made mostly of wood, so if they pushed the gas too hard, the front would lift off the ground and the whole car would flip onto its back. Ponce's oh. friend, Focalt, would have to lean forward whenever the car was going uphill <laughs> to prevent it from flipping. <laughs> Oh, slide slope, oh, lean forward, and he literally, there we his are. His friend is counterweight. <laughs> <laughs> like, the Contal is crazy. Oh. It's this tiny little thing with a wheel in the back. It looks nuts. It literally oh. looks like you cut a car in half and a motorbike in half. You took the front half of a car and the back half of a motorbike. It looks like yeah. that. It's nuts. Oh. Um, there's no images of it, sadly, because it was a custom-made car. But if anyone wants to search up, search up Cycle Cars of 1905 what this thing was and it's the craziest thing i would never get in my life it's a fucking death machine on top of to this be fair to hmm? be fair i think most of these cars are death machines on mountains and through deserts yeah but if you are the counterweight <laughs> uh. on top of this all the cars were roofless windowless leaving the drivers exposed to rain wind dust bugs and any other elements they'd encounter None of the cars had power steering yet, meaning that the only thing to turn the wheels was the driver's arm strength. And to start a car, you had to hand crank the engine in the front. God, the bugs. <laughs> Jesus. Just eating flies while you're driving down the road. Yeah, no, that does not sound pleasant. The race was set to start on June 10th, 1907. But the Chinese government who had already authorized the race, refused to grant the racers the necessary travel documents that would allow them to drive through Mongolia. Goddard of the Spiker, who we've already concluded is a man that likes to improvise, decided, ah, fuck it, he's going to race anyways. Wait, why are they going through Mongolia? Peking From north up to Mongolia, through Siberia, over the Gobi Desert and all that, um... into Moscow, across Europe... I would argue there might be an easier path. Then I, I'm not sure. Like, where's the honor and glory in that? Be, yeah, there might be war and difficult terrain, but still, okay, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, got out of the spiker, who we've already concluded was a man that likes to improvise. He decided he's going to race anyways. Meanwhile, Borghisa of the Atala decided that he was above listening to Chinese officials. He was an Italian aristocrat after all, so he yes. was going to race too. And the other three racers then decided to join in and ignore the Chinese officials, and all five teams agreed to leave on June 10th with or without papers. Seems smart. The cars lined up in the street, packed with supplies. Both the Spiker and the Atala had extra fuel as their cars consumed more than was put out along the course. Burkis paid for his fuel from his own pocket, while Godard convinced a local official to borrow him the money, promising that a letter would arrive in a few days to pay him back. No such letter would arrive by then, and Godard would be far gone thanks to the gas. 
I mean, <laughs> yeah, no, he seems trustworthy. He has a car. He I'll has conned his way into this the... race. He didn't even have a car. He's borrowed the car. He had someone pay for his entrance fee. He used the spare parts he got from the factory in case the car broke down to buy a first class ticket. He's tricked a guy into buying him the gas. Uh, so he's going to um, spend the rest of his life in Siberia when his car breaks down and he has no way out. Okay. Worth it. Just remembering back to the first class ticket. Uh, well, let's see if I can write my wife and children a letter telling them dad's not coming back home. A local band played music and the Peking officials set off Chinese firecrackers along the streets and crowds cheered the men and they were off. The cars raced through the streets of Peking and out of the city. Already from the start, the Atala's dominance was clear. With as much horsepower as the four other cars combined, it pulled ahead from the rest of the racers. The start of the race was a huge success, with each driver showing what their vehicles were capable of and proving once and for all that cars were more than just toys for rich men. For an hour. Because that's when the roads from Peking went from cobble to dirt. And it started raining. (laughs) (laughs) The dirt road went from being an uncomfortably bumpy ride to a muddy glue that slowed the cars to a crawl. Even the powerful Itala was having issues chugging through the mud. For the next days, the cars would make very slow progress as they crawled through the mud. Finally, the cars reached the western mountains between northern China and the Mongolian plains. The path through the mountains was narrow, steep, and only meant for mules. Some of the passageways were carved into the side of cliffs barely wide enough for the cars to fit on without one of their wheels slipping off of the edge. It was quickly discovered that most of the inclines were so steep the car's engines just died if they tried to drive up, so the cars had to be pushed up the mountains by mules and men via ropes. Well, prove how good these cars' automobiles are. Well, by pushing them all across. Sir, it's dead. We're sliding backwards. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Get the mule. <laughs> like, the whole point was to prove that cars were better than horses, and then they're just crawling over a mountain thanks to mules. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But going down wasn't any better. When the Atala began descending the mountains on the Mongolian side, Guizardi, the mechanic, was at the wheel while Borghese was resting in the back. Guizardi was using the brakes to slowly drive the car down when he reached a particularly steep drop. Despite all the modifications Borghese had done to drop the weight of the Atala, the brakes couldn't win against gravity and snapped off. The Atala careened down the mountainside with Guizardi gripping the wheel with all of his strength. Remember, you have to use your strength to steer these things. And maneuvering the vehicle past cliffs and boulders. By a combination of sheer luck and Guizardi's adrenaline-fueled steering, the Atala made it to the bottom safely. Well, at the very least, they're in the lead now, right? Have you ever, like, fallen asleep in a car? Can you pick... Like, Borges was in the back, sleeping, and then he wakes up mid-careening down a mountainside. I assume they don't have, like, any form of feathering in those cars either. No, no seatbelts yet. Yeah, yeah, mm mm-hmm. It's a miracle he stayed on the car, really. (laughs) The other drivers took note, watching the uh, Itala just kind of careen down the mountainside. And none of them drove down. They all hauled their cars down with mules rather than rely on their brakes. (laughs) It took five days to cross the mountains, but once the cars were down from the mountains, 
they had a new obstacle in front of them. The Gobi Desert. Ah, yes. Mm -hmm. The teams were again slowed to a crawl as their vehicles and wheels struggled to get a grip in the sand. And on top of that were guzzling gas, constantly having to pull themselves over dunes and out of pits. The Contal, the small three-wheeled vehicle driven by Ponce, quickly burned through its tank, then its reserves. Ponce and Focalt found themselves stranded in the middle of the desert with barely any supplies. As the Contal couldn't carry much, they cut down on water. We're about to head into the desert. <laughs> what ballast can we get rid of? Well, this water will certainly not, uh, don't, like, we certainly won't need that. I mean, it, in their defense, they, it couldn't, it was a motorcycle. Yeah. There's, like, they had as much water as they could fit on it, but it was the choice between water or gas. <laughs> it was just, um, so they abandoned their vehicle and began walking, hoping to find civilization. They quickly ran out of the water they had and were on the brink of dying from dehydration when a small caravan of nomadic Mongolians found them. Ponce and Foucault called it quits and headed home, leaving the Contal to be buried in the sands. It is yet to be found. It is wow. the only example of a Contal ever made, by the way. Hmm. It's the only one ever produced by that factory. And it's buried in it's the It's buried in the Gobi Desert somewhere. somewhere, and no one has found it. And people have been looking <laughs> for it for quite a while. We have no images of it or anything. It's kind of like a treasure hunter. like a, For uh, car enthusiasts, that's literally buried treasure. Uncharted 5, the hunt for the car. <laughs> The four remaining teams kept on through the desert, but a new problem had arisen. They were driving through the Gobi Desert in late June to prevent meeting the monsoon. Mm -hmm. At late June, mm -hmm. the Gobi Desert was at its hottest, and none of their engines were able to deal with the blistering heat. Every car's engine boiled over constantly, making progress impossible, as whenever it boils over, the car just stops and you have to let mm -hmm. it cool down. They had to cool the engines... And having no other choice, the drivers were forced to use their own water supplies to cool their radiators in order to keep on driving. Yeah. I mean, what do you do? Like, if you don't use your water, you're just sitting in the desert waiting for the engine to cool mm -hmm. off in the sun. So that takes hours. So you're drinking your water or you use your water to drive and you cross the desert faster. I mean, either way, you're using that water. I, yeah. I kind of agree with that choice, albeit as a terrible, <laughs> I mean, it's a terrible choose your poison. <laughs> Yeah, no, it, it's it's probably the right choice until your car breaks down. Oh, then, At then which it's point, a, it was the wrong. Then choice. it was the wrong choice. <laughs> As I mentioned previously, the drivers followed a telegraph line so that they could report back home. Borghese was the first of the racers to arrive at the telegraph station of Hong Pong, a tiny village in the middle of the desert. <clears throat> when Borghese's journalist Barzini entered the telegraph office, which was a small one-room shack. To report on their progress, he saw the telegram he was sending was number one on the machine. Initially, Barzini thought this meant he was the first person to send a telegram that day, but then he realized it was the first telegram to have ever been sent from Hong Pong Village since it got the telegram station six years earlier. This is how remote these guys were. Now, is there just a telegram station in the middle of the desert, just like a small little shack? Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, they, they built a line through the Gobi Desert, yeah. and they there was probably a small nomadic village there, so they had the line go through the nomadic village just because. Yeah. And, and the uh, village was like, well, we don't know anyone. Why would we send a, what what is this, a telegram? I don't know, they probably did, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Hang our laundry on it. <laughs> 
Surprisingly, the drivers made faster progress through the desert than the mountains. They reached the mountains on the Russian border after five days of driving through the Gobi Desert. For comparison, a camel caravan normally took 17 days to cross the Gobi Desert. At this point, the Atala was roughly half a day in front of the other three cars, the two Dedeons and the Spiker, who all were pretty much side by side. The mountains between Mongolia and Russia were easier to pass than the mountains between China and Mongolia. They were not as steep and had better roads carved through them, made with wagons in mind, so the cars did pretty much fine. Next up was Siberia, with dense forests and dozens of rivers crisscrossing. I mean... In no situation is crossing Siberia pleasant. No. So, at this point, the Atala, again, it's just massively more powerful. It's half a day ahead of the three other cars, which are pretty mm-hmm. much neck and neck. Um, at this point, we're pretty much going to be following Prince Borgesa and the Atala because he just keeps on gaining. It's just ludicrous. Yeah. Like, it was it, it was never really a race to begin with. No, it was he was he went on the journey and some other people tried yeah, to follow no. him. Like his his he's again, he's got a mechanic which no one else has. Mm-hmm. His car is as powerful as the four other cars combined. He's a very talented driver. He's got a shitload of supplies. So, and he also is the guy who basically wrote a book on this event. So a lot of the stuff is from his perspective as well. Um we'll get into yeah. later why Goldard and the others haven't really spoken out about what happened. Um but yeah, we're going to pretty much follow him from here on. Okay. So It was here that uh, Borghese hoped to make the largest advancements. He had come across an old military map showing an unmarked road through the Siberian wilderness. This road was not on public maps, as it was for military use only. Borghese decided that this was his key to victory. While the other drivers crawled through Siberian forests, he'd cruise along on a nice road at top speed. Okay, this is him, like, days in the lead... Guaranteed to win this race. Mm-hmm. He'll he's thinking, hmm, I'll take this military road. He's got an ace up his sleeve. Yeah, yeah, no, no, like this is gonna be the difference. This is like it's neck on neck. I'm gonna <laughs> use this like secret road and that's how I'm well, winning. Well keep in mind it was never a race. It was just a course just to prove that cars could do something. It just kinda became a race when more than one man entered. Oh, yeah. So But when Borghese arrived at the road, he realized that his map was horribly outdated. The road had been abandoned for four years after the construction of the Trans-Siberian Railway made it obsolete, and the Siberian forest had made quick work reclaiming most of the road. The majority of the bridges were rotten and collapsing, and some had washed entirely away. Despite this, a partial road was still better than no road, so Borghese drove on. (laughs) When Borghese arrived at the first bridge, he could clearly see it would not support the Atala. For long. So he floored the gas and sped across the bridge, making it to the other side as it collapsed behind him. He did this at the next bridge, and the next, and the next, every single one of them collapsing. (laughs) On the fifth bridge, his luck ran out. Kind of. Um, this time Borghese was resting in the back, and the mechanic, Guizardi, was at the wheel. Now, Guizardi had just arrived on another rotten, partially washed-away wooden bridge, and he was a bit more timid than Borghese, so he slowly inched across the wooden structure. 
He got about halfway before there was the sound of cracking, crumbling wood as the back wheels crushed into the bridge. This caused the car to fall backwards through the bridge, flipping it upside down on its head, and then the bridge collapsed on top of them. Barzini, the reporter, was sitting in the front seat, and considering the car flipped backwards, was catapulted out of the car, slamming into the bottom of the riverbed as the bridge collapsed on top of him. Guizzardi was also thrown from his seat, but managed to catch onto a part of the bridge that didn't fall, and Borghisi awoke, finding himself hanging under a suspended car covered in oil. Oh, I mean, at that point, he's like, you're not driving anymore. <laughs> like, yeah, like, it's not his fault. About now, like the bridge. He I... was both times. He was being super careful. And it's just something other than him gave way. Like first time the brake snapped and this time the bridge gave way. I mean, I don't well, blame yeah, him. But if the other guy was speeding across the bridges and that was working out, why did you then like slowly <laughs> inch across it when all the other bridges collapsed afterwards? <clears throat> The mechanic Guizardi was the first to recover from the crash, and he pulled the two other men from the pile of bridge and car. Surprisingly, other than some bonked heads, they had no injuries. They had some bruises. Even the dude who got catapulted, he slammed into the mud, and the bridge fell on top of him. But because the riverbed was so soft, it didn't crush him, it just pushed him into the mud. Like, they were all just bruised. Yeah. I think the worst thing I found was that um, uh, Guizardi had a sprained ankle, I think, was an issue. They were mentioning he couldn't really push a pedal. That's yeah. it. Like, a sprained ankle from this. They inspected the Atala, which surprisingly looked fine. The spare tire had loosened during the flip and ended up between the car's front and the ground, creating a nice cushion to land on. And one of the bridge's supporting beams had prevented the car from falling too far. It took the men three hours to pull the car out, flip it over, and get it back on the road. When they did, Guizardi cranked the handle, and the car sputtered and started right back up. Guizardi, quote, she seems quite safe. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, they are kind of proving their point. If they can yeah. use a car through this terrain, I mean, then... Oh, yeah. Yeah. Borghisi and the Atala made good progress on the abandoned military road through Siberia, gaining now a day's lead over the other teams. Whenever they were not stuck in mud or upside down in a river, the Atala was a superior vehicle and both Borghisi and Guizardi were extremely talented drivers. Hmm. Eventually, the Atala reached the end of the military road and had miles upon miles of deep tundra ahead of them. The soft, muddy, and mossy ground made for a bad road, which the car would just sink into. And Borghese needed a solution. That's when he heard a train in the distance. Ah, uh, yes. Driving over, Borghese found a railroad stretching over the tundra. If they could get the car on the tracks, they could drive for miles. Guizardi, the mechanic, got to work modifying the Atala. Using a system of planks under the car that would allow the car to mount onto one of the rails so that one pair of wheels was on the outside and one pair on the inside. Mm -hmm. So they basically have, like, in the yeah. middle of the car on the underside, they latch onto one of the rails. I see planks. a slight problem with that, uh, with that idea. Guizardi installed a lever that would unlatch the car from the rails in case of an oncoming train. Okay. <clears throat> this worked, 
And after a couple hours, Guizari, using wood, had modified the Atala to now latch onto a train track and ride it. Which, to me, is nuts. <coughs> he used wood. And he's just like, well, this is a train. We're a train now. <laughs> okay, then. But there was a downside. With one set of wheels on the inside of the rails, the car was driving on the railroad ties, the planks under the rails, mm -hmm. which made for an extremely bumpy ride. Yeah. None of the men could sleep or even rest and suffered terrible nausea. Guizardi called the bumpy ride, quote, a horrible dance. But that wasn't the only downside of riding on a set of train tracks, as I'm sure you've been thinking. One night, the driver saw a light in the distance. Feeling the vibration on the rails, they knew a train was on a collision course with them, and Guizardi pulled the lever. But nothing happened. The car stayed latched onto the rail. The Atala was still latched on due to a malfunction of the lever, and the men had to hang over the side of the car, using long tools to pry the wooden latch under the car open, while speeding towards an oncoming train, while the car was bouncing and bumping on the rail ties, in the middle of the night. They're doing this and still driving? Yes. Why? Because they don't want to stop. You ha If this car stops, you have to get out and crank it. Right. Which means you don't get it off the rails. They have to keep the engine running. Jesus. They can't. There's no such thing as neutral. <laughs> they have. They can't stop it. So they're speeding toward an oncoming train. In the middle of the night. Oh, this was before. This, this was before electrical lights, by the way. They were still using candles, so that train had no fucking clue they were out there. <laughs> okay, then. They managed to dislatch the Atala just in time and take a sharp 90-degree turn off the tracks and into a ditch and prevented being obliterated by a Russian freight train. From here on, the crew of the Atala decided that they had enough with driving on train tracks. They'd deal with the muddy planes instead. And Borghese had a new idea. Oh, boy. He looped chains around the wheels and through the spokes, which would give them more traction as they drove through the mud. Now, this is not a terrible idea. It's something truckers still do today in cold mm -hmm. climates to deal with snow. And it worked amazingly. The Atala chugged through the mud. But naturally, there was a downside. Chains uh -huh. added a ton of weight and stress to, um, to the tires. The reason ch the chains work today is because our wheels and our spokes are solid steel. The Atala had wooden spokes that the chains were uh, tied through. Mm -hmm. They caused so much stress on the spokes that they cracked and splintered, and Guizardi constantly had to stop the Atala and make repairs over the next days. Finally, after three days of driving with chains, the Atala's left front wheel exploded into splinters and chains, leaving the Atala stranded in a muddy wasteland. Well, good thing they still have a spare wheel, right? Now that one got crushed on the bridge. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh. <laughs> and his crew walked on foot to a nearby Russian village, and there they found a cartwright, a man who makes wagons, who was said to be the best in the whole area. The cartwright listened to what they uh, needed, because they brought basically a broken remain of a wheel, didn't understand yeah. their language. He nodded, grabbed a hatchet, some aged pine wood, and within a few hours, using only the hatchet, the Cartwright had made a brand new wheel that fit the Atala perfectly. Wow. Quote from Barzini, the journalist, The hatchet becomes, in the hands of the Russian peasant, a wonderfully exact tool. 
<laughs> the Atala was back on the metaphorical road yet again. Using just a hatchet, he made it a brand new wheel. That's I gotta give him that. But also, if the dude yeah. just got your car back on, don't call him a peasant. <laughs> 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 Fucking I mean, snobby Italian aristocrats. <laughs> we are stranded in the desert. We thank this uh, this man. We owe him our life. This lowly. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think to him that was necessarily a negative term. That's just what he would call someone, right? I, mean, I, I guess, but it, it sounds very derogatory, though. Yeah, definitely. So, it took a week for the Atala to cross Siberia and arrive in Moscow. And they were still very much ahead of the competition, by 17 days at this point. They had such a lead that Borghese even took a detour to St. Petersburg to attend a Grand Gala feast before returning <laughs> to Moscow and rejoining the race. Yeah, you know you're in a pretty big lead when you have time to, like, yeah, yeah. go to a gala. Yeah. From Moscow to Paris was rather uneventful for the Atala. Um, from here on, there would be roads, or worst gravel roads meant for wagons, which was luxury compared to what they'd been through. And the Atala only kept on gaining a lead. When driving through Belgium, uh, the Atala was stopped by a policeman for going over the speed limit. When asked for identification, Prince Borghese simply said, quote, I am Prince Borghese. We have just driven from Peking to China. It took the officer a while to confirm this, but once that was done, the Italian aristocrat was allowed to go. <laughs> On the 10th of August, 1907, the Atala rolled into Paris, making them the winners of the Peking to Paris race. It had taken them 61 days. Crowds lined the streets, cheering and celebrating the Atala's arrival. Quote from Barzini, It all seems absurd and impossible. I cannot convince myself that we have come to the end, that we have really arrived. So he didn't expect to live through that. <laughs> I don't think it, it, I think at that after sixty one days on the road that becomes your identity yeah. your life kind of right like and then it's I guess, over yeah. and it's just like oh is it really really like <laughs> meanwhile the two Dedions and Spiker were crawling through Siberia nobody told them the race was over I take it <laughs> no <laughs> um, they arrived at Moscow um, pretty much just fine the two Dedions did make it to Paris arriving twenty days after the Atala. The Spiker arrived a few days after that, but without Godard. He had been forcefully removed from the Spiker in Berlin over money issues with the newspaper Le Matin. As it turns out, the guy he tricked into paying his entrance fee to the race had contacted uh -huh. Le Matin and asked for a refund when he wasn't paid. The Spiker rolled up in Paris, driven by the journalist Jean Dutalis, <laughs> and Godard was just left behind in Berlin, and I have... Couldn't find anything else about him. Nothing about the rest of his life. That's all we know about him. He was just left in Berlin, and that's that. <laughs> yeah, he probably made it, like, did a vanishing act. Uh, yeah, probably. Prince Borrowing Bur money from someone else. Oh, there, I too bet. <laughs> Prince Borghese proved that cars were useful machines and more than mere toys. And the race succeeded in raising the public's opinion on cars. The feat of Borghese and the Atala has never been properly repeated. In 1957, Luigi Barzini Jr. asked the Russian government for permission to redo the race in honor of his father, but was not allowed. In 1997, a road rally was held to commemorate the 1907 race, but the race officials decided to not have the racers go through Siberia. 
To this day, the 1907 race stands alone as one of automobile history's most amazing unchallenged feats. After the race, Borghese lived a life, an eventful life worthy of his own snippet. He married, he had two children, he traveled all over Asia from Beirut to Pacific, he wrote books on his travels, he went on the race, he discovered places, like he just, he kept on being a dude, so. Hmm. He passed away on the 18th of October, 1927, at the age of 57. The Atala can be seen in the Car Museum at Turin, Italy. The Spiker is in a private collection somewhere. In 2007, both cars were still in working condition and were driven from Paris to Peking in honor of the anniversary of the race. So it That's still cool. fucking works a hundred yeah, years yeah. later. <laughs> it's still, I, I, I like to think that it still has the wheel that the Russian quote-unquote peasant made with a hatchet. <laughs> it's <got> just one <laughs> Russian hand-chopped wheel. <sighs> Anyways, so... <laughs> There is another race. There is the 1908 New York to Paris race, which is an equally crazy story. Um, yep. But we'll pass on the torch for that. Uh, we're going to do a shout out to The Dollop, which is an amazing history podcast. They did an episode on that one. Uh, definitely go check that out if you thought this was interesting. That episode's equally crazy. <laughs> so, yeah, that's the uh, Peking to Paris race of 1907. <laughs> what a race. Oh, God, the bugs. <laughs> I still can't get over that. That's the worst. Like, I'll take mud any day, but just chomping flies and mosquitoes. You're driving through wet Siberia, wetlands. Mm -hmm. The mosquitoes, it's just clouds of them. Uh, Jesus. Yeah. I don't know, I guess it's just trail rations at that point. <laughs> okay, guys, until next time. Bye-bye.